Well, hello, Cornerstone. Um, I'm preaching from the lectionary this third Sunday of this season where we um, anticipate coming into uh, Easter, into um, Holy Week, and uh, having a special sort of season of focus on, on the cross and on what God achieved through the cross and, and through the death of Jesus and thankfully the resurrection. Hey, uh, we're going to have a look this morning at a passage from um, John and uh, hopefully you've, you've watched the, the video reading there so that I can just jump right in here. But it's John chapter 2 verses 12 to 23 if you want to have a look in your own Bibles. It's difficult for me to imagine uh, something that somebody could do in the life of our nation as, uh, as an Australian that could come close to uh, the level of kind of proc- provocation and potential uh, scandal, uh, of insult maybe, of, um, of kind of political and religious rebellion uh, as what Jesus um, did in this passage that we have looked at this morning or that you're having a look at now. So uh, perhaps, you know, if someone was to to do something that seemed really disrespectful uh, as a part of the Anzac Day parade, somehow to extinguish uh, the external external, the eternal flame uh, that is a, is a way of honouring uh, soldiers who, who have lost their lives defending this country. Maybe, maybe that begins to get us into the ballpark of the, the scandal uh, and, the, and the confrontation of what it is that Jesus is doing in this passage from John. But even then, I, I don't think it really comes uh, anywhere close to Jesus when he clears the temple uh, on this um, really significant time of the year for the Jews and for the life of the temple uh, at the season of Passover. So Jesus goes in and um, you know he, he causes a huge scene. The suggestion has been from the kind of most uh, reliable numbers that I think I can find the, the population of Jerusalem at this time of year swelled to something like three or four times uh, what its normal living population was. So there could be, uh, you know, a, a conservative estimate of about a million people in the city of Jerusalem for Passover, all with the intention of making some sort of sacrifice at the temple. And so all of the kind of... Um, representations I've seen of this event in film and in art, I think actually undersell the the scale of what it was that Jesus did when he cleared the temple, the, the, um, the effect of it, that he would drive out, you know, hundreds of people, that he would, that he would completely disrupt uh, the trade that is going on there by letting animals free and turning over uh, the tables of money changers. In fact, some people have, have suggested that this is actually, uh, and I, I'm not sure I'd go this far, but this is actually a miracle 
of Jesus is that he was able to, to do what he did as he cleansed the temple to, to cause such disruption without any record of physical harm. He put a stop for a moment in time to the sacrificial system of the temple and, and he provokes and calls into question the, the authority and, and the rightness of those who are, are working in the system there. There's a few things going on that I think are significant in this passage for, for the time that we have together this morning. As Jesus um, cleanses the temple, as we read about in John chapter 2, he's, he's saying something about the temple. He's doing something in relationship to the temple and the system it represents and its place in the life of his people, the Jews. He's also doing something with regard to sending a message about who it is that he is and what he represents, what he's doing. When Jesus cleanses the temple in John 2, he is calling in to question what is going on there. In a sense, he, he's, he's invoking the prophetic tradition of Israel. He, he's, he's maybe echoing the message of prophets like Isaiah, who, who, who say that God um, is, is, is not as interested in the animal sacrifices as his people seem to be, particularly in light of the moral condition of the nation. He is uh, echoing the, the prophets like Micah, who say that uh, the festivals and observances of God's people are an insult to him when they're not going along with uh, the care of the poor and the righteousness of the nation um, to, to be living in right relationship with God and doing the right thing by those in their midst who, who need justice. He's maybe um, standing in the line of, of many prophets who have looked at God's nation and, and God's people and felt like uh, there's a gap between who God calls them to be and who they are and calling them to close that gap. At the same time, uh, the disciples, uh, it says, as they look at what Jesus does, uh, are reminded of a messianic passage that says, zeal for my house will consume me. This is pointing to uh, something that goes on in the Messiah and they recognize as they're seeing Jesus perform this amazing act in the temple driving people out, driving, uh, you know, cleansing the temple, that Jesus is coming representative of the Messiah. And uh, as the Messiah, he, he, he's standing in the tradition of expectation of the Messiah. And isn't it interesting that even the religious leaders there in the temple, the temple authorities 
uh, it says, uh, question him, what can you do to prove to us that you are the Messiah? Because surely only the Messiah um, could be bold enough to do what it is that you have done in cleansing the temple. The expectation of the Messiah for so many would have been that actually the Messiah would come in to judge the nations around Israel. And so Jesus is being confrontational where here he begins his messianic work by judging the Jews and judging the nation of Israel and judging its temple system. I've used the language uh, in recent weeks of, of how Jesus is reframing, as it were, the, the story of Israel around himself. Uh, he is showing himself in the temptation to be the faithful son that Israel couldn't be. He's establishing a new nation by uh, appointing 12 disciples, like 12 tribes. He's passed through the waters of baptism as the Hebrew people passed through the waters on their way out of Egypt. He's doing all this to say something in the story of Israel is coming to a fulfillment in me. And that is only continued in this passage. Uh, it's amazing, isn't it? In fact, it's something that gets used against Jesus uh, as he is, is taken to the cross, uh, that when uh, it says the Jews ask for a sign, and I'm, I'm using John's language there, I'm not entirely comfortable personally with uh, you know, talking about the Jews, but that's uh, the language that John's using there as a Jew. Uh, so it's representative of, 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 the, of the system that's going on in Israel and a whole heap of stuff, not just an ethnic sort of um, category. Uh, isn't it interesting that when they question Jesus what sign he can give them, he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. It says uh, in verse 21 that the body um, of Christ uh, is the temple so but the temple he had spoken of was his body and this was something that the um, disciples recalled after his death so you might remember at his trial that gets brought up um, what, so, what sort of charges can we bring against this man and someone says he, he, he once uh, said that he was going to destroy the temple but that's not exactly what he says he says destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days he's he's doing two things at once there he is sort of apocalyptically um, predicting i think god's judgment on the temple and the end of the temple uh, that the temple would be destroyed within a generation in ad 70 and for the jews um, you know when they think about the destruction of the temple they might think back to nebuchadnezzar destroying the temple in the 6th century BC and the fact that that was actually regarded as a judgment, an act of judgment of God, even though Nebuchadnezzar did it a foreign power, it was a result of Israel not living into the destiny that God had given them. So at once Jesus is sort of pronouncing and foreshadowing a judgment on the physical temple that he's just cleansed. The other but, you know, at the same time, on the other hand, he's pointing to the establishment 
of a new temple, the temple being his body. So that's why he can say, raise it up. It will be raised up again in three days. Interesting there that the temple system in Jerusalem ends as Jesus is establishing himself as the temple. The temple in Jerusalem being the place where people once uh, could come in some sort of proximity to the presence of God um, through ceremony, through ritual. It was, it was localized. It was um, contained within the Jewish nation. And yet Jesus is pointing to the establishment of a new temple that is available to, to all nations um, and, and um, is, is located in him, the very presence of God in the world available to all. So Jesus is, is, is changing Israel's story. He's taking it upon himself and he's opening it up for all of humanity, for all nations to use biblical language. At the same time, as Jesus stops for that day, at least, the flow of sacrifices through the temple by freeing all those animals and driving the traders out. Uh, and he, he's, again, I think, foreshadowing and pointing to the end of this system in AD 70 when the temple's destroyed, never to be rebuilt to this day. Jesus becomes the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. So the shedding of the blood of animals that had taken place for millennia there, for centuries there, is ended, but ended in the shedding of Jesus' blood, a sacrifice that stands for all time for all people. I think this passage shows us something about the methodology of God, the order in which God does things. We might, as God's people, hope, as Israel hoped, that uh, the Messiah would come and begin to judge the nations around them and completely vindicate them. But what happens here, don't we see, is that God begins by judging his own actually he's interested in putting the house of his people in order before he goes and puts order through the rest of the world and i think that's because there's something of the witness of the house of god's people that is so important to the way that he wants to go about establishing order throughout the world. He has chosen through scripture Israel to be a blessing to the nations. And so when they're not, though the nations have gone astray, though the nations are not living in line with his heart, his concern is first that his people would be living in line with his heart, that his people would be a witness, would be a blessing to the world. You know, I don't think God changes the way that he does these things and is going to do these things. What does that mean for us, though? The, the temple's gone, right? What does it mean for us that, that Christ 
is the temple. Well, does it mean that there is no temple in the world at the moment if Christ has ascended and is no longer incarnated amongst us in the way that he was in the first century with the disciples that we read about in this passage? Not, not exactly. Because Jesus is embodied in the world. I want to draw your attention just briefly as I bring this to a close to 1 Peter 2nd chapter. And um, from verse 4, it says this, As you come to him, the living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a temple, a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. There are many places in the New Testament that that echo this language of Peter, that in fact, as Christ's body is the temple, we are his body in the world. And so our lives are the lives of the stones of a living temple. If you think about the fact that the temple in Jerusalem was the locus, the location, the place where the presence of God dwelt in the world, isn't it sensible then that those of you who are indwelled by the Spirit, who have decided to rely on Jesus and dedicate your lives to following Jesus, that you become that spiritual home in the world, that you become, as it were, a temple in the world where people may come into contact with the living God. Of course, the way that we find ourselves in this place of amazing privilege is completely by the grace of God, that he would grace us with his presence, though we are so unworthy, though so often our lives are maybe like the temple that Jesus cleansed. They're just not set up. They're not managed in such a way as to communicate what should be communicated about the God who lives there. There may be things uh, in our lives which may kind of contrast and send a contrasting message about the nature of who God is and about his intention in the world. It's just by grace that we are in this position. At the same time, I think this passage is a warning to us that we cannot continue to live in a way that does some violence to God, that misrepresents his character, that somehow offers a competing story about where he resides and what he is doing. And so while Jesus loves you, while Jesus has forgiven you if you've asked him to, while he desires to dwell in you and the Holy Spirit to anoint you, to live in you, to work through you. Perhaps we need to be more attuned, more ready to accept the fact that he may just come through the temple of our lives with a whip prepared to do what needs to be done to clean house 
to clear the temple, to cleanse it, so that it does some justice to the nature of the God who dwells there. Hey, we're going to do communion at church this morning and um, I want us to gather around this thought. Do we need to clean house? What would it look like to allow Christ into our hearts, not just to drench us in his mercy, to love us and to forgive us, but to love us by calling us back to being a house where the presence of God can dwell, to close that gap, as the prophets called Israel to, between who they were and who God had intended them to be. I'm going to pray for us. Father, we thank you that through Christ you are present in our lives and present in the world, and we thank you for the tremendous privilege and opportunity of being your temple people in the world. Thank you, God, that you make grace available to us and you will forgive us if we call on you. Many ways we misrepresent you of the junk that we let into our lives that sends the wrong message about who you are and prevents us from being who you want us to be. Lord, in your mercy, I pray this morning as we open our hearts and our lives to you again, our minds as well, that you would come through, even if it needs to have a degree of violence to it, that you would cleanse us, that you would drive out of us the things that don't do you justice, the things that, that might prevent the full manifestation of your presence in our lives. Help us to see the things that need to be turned over like those tables were turned over by your son. Help us to see uh, the noise and the smell uh, that might be inappropriate, the things that we need to untie and drive out. Lord, help us to be attuned to the systems in our lives, the things that we're doing that might be taking advantage of the poor. God, do your cleansing work in us this morning. I pray. Amen. Hey, going to leave it there. God bless you.